I'm Melissa. I'm Jam. And I'm a chemist. And I'm not. And welcome to Chemistry for Your Life. The podcast helps you understand the chemistry of your everyday life. And if it's your first time listening to our podcast or you're new-ish, just a little more info. Uh, Melissa actually really is a chemist. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and she's got her master's. She teaches chemistry Teach at the university. organic chemistry. Yeah. Organic chemistry. And she is inches away from her PhD. Right. And like I probably just a few days away when this comes out. Right. Right. So yeah, very, very close. And then I, on the flip side, truly, truly, I say unto you, I am not a <laughs> chemist in any way, shape or form. I'm just like many of you. I'm just here because I'm interested in chemistry. And I want to learn it. And every episode I learn it for the first time live right in front of your ears. It's true. But I will say though, jam is a radio, television, and film expert. That's what his degree is in. That's true. And he is the reason that we have awesome sound quality. So we are thankful for the way our expertise mesh to bring you this show. Super different expertises that happen to weirdly just work out. Yeah. And it is a, a weird bonus that I am interested in science and chemistry and stuff. Originally, when Melissa and I were talking about this podcast, it was just that I had the technical know-how stuff to help her do it. And then I was like, but also I want to learn it. Also teach me science. Yeah. You said, <laughs> can I be the person that learns the science? <laughs> so it worked out perfectly. So welcome. We're glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. So, and Jam actually already knows the topic of today's episode because I was really excited to share about it because it's something really personal to me. And I just wanted to sort of run by him that that's what we are going to do. So, but he still hasn't learned it yet. He just already knows. Right, right. I don't have any advantage. Right. Actually, normally y'all have the advantage because you know what you're going to learn when you click on the episode. And he <laughs> usually doesn't. When we start recording, that's when he finds out what we're going to talk about yeah. usually. Yeah, that's true. So what we're going to talk about today is ADHD and uh, medication for ADHD. Um, I'm not a neuroscientist. And the brain is really, really complicated. So I'm going to zoom in just on the function of dopamine in the brain and how treatments work in the brain. If there are neuroscientists out there who take issue with my oversimplification, I totally understand, but I really wanted to focus on the molecules and how they're able to do their jobs. So I kind of wanted to give that disclaimer. And I also wanted to say that part of why I really wanted to share about this is because I was recently diagnosed with ADHD. And I really, at the end of this episode, I want to take time to share about what it was like to be diagnosed with ADHD, especially at the end of my graduate school career. I've been in graduate school for uh, my master's degree, my PhD for seven years now. And so I think people are surprised when they hear that, but it's really, really impacted my life significantly. And I want to talk about some of those struggles as a scientist, because that's something that we don't get a chance to hear about very often and that academia doesn't really emphasize. And so I want to use this platform to address that. Mm, awesome. Yeah. So that being said, I think this is going to be a little bit of a different episode. It's going to be longer and I'm going to be pretty vulnerable and share about what my experiences have been like. We're going to try to keep a lot of that at the end. So, you know, if, if after the chemistry lesson you want to bounce out, that's fine. But I do want to really take this opportunity to share about what ADHD has looked like for me, which may not be what people expect ADHD to look like in their lives and possibly have the opportunity to connect with other people who are struggling with something similar. But first, we're going to do a science lesson. Okay, sweet. Okay, and I also am going to sort of pull the rug out from under you because the only way I could figure out how to teach this was with an analogy. Man, okay. <laughs> I know, I know, but it's not a perfect analogy, so. Okay. But I do think it will help us to kind of be tracking with what's going on in the brain. Okay, okay, cool. So a ton of what happens in our brain is regulated by chemicals. Right. Like your whole personality, I mean, really your whole body is just chemicals everything is made up of atoms. And so the interaction of everything is atom interaction. And so that's all basically just chemistry. Right, right. The specific study of chemistry within biological things is biochemistry. So to be more specific, it is biochemistry. And even more specifically, when we get into the brain, it's neuroscience. 
And actually, I love neuroscience and not very many people know this, but for a hot minute in college, I was a neuroscience major. Oh. <laughs> and then I realized that I cared more about the molecules than what was happening in the brain. And ironically, I thought working with human subjects would not be fun. And now all I do is research with human subjects. So that's kind of funny. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so I switched back to chemistry. I'm so glad I did. I love the chemistry work that I get to do, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but that goes to show that there's so much chemistry in the brain, right? There's so many molecules that are at play here. And we're only going to talk about a few. And some of the big players that we're going to talk about are called monoamines. They're also sometimes referred to as neurotransmitters. They're molecules that send signals when they bind to receptors in the brain. Okay. Okay. So the reason they're called monoamines is many of these molecules have one amine functional group, monoamine. Okay. And a functional group we've talked about before is basically a collection of atoms that can be found over and over. So OH is one that is an alcohol functional group. It's oxygen and then a hydrogen. And it's on a lot of different things like isopropyl alcohol, ethanol, methanol, all these things you've heard before. Those are all characterized by having this alcohol group, this oxygen hydrogen group on them. Okay. So an amine is a similar type of functional group. It has a nitrogen with three things bonded to it. Um, in this case, the nitrogen is bound to a, a molecule, a chain of carbons, and it has two hydrogens on it. Okay. And we've talked, so amines have come up at some point. I just yes. cannot remember when or why, but that word is familiar to me. I'm sure that they, they might have come up when we did the Maillard reaction, mm. but they, they're very common in nature because amino acids have... I think technically they have a slightly different functional group, but amines are very, very present in nature. Okay, got it. And you've also ammonium is, or ammonia, those are types of amines. They are um, nitrogen with either three or four hydrogens around them. Ammonium chloride is a nitrogen with four hydrogens around it that then makes a salt when it interacts with chlorine. So Amines, ammonium, very, very common. Got it. Got it. I didn't even think about that, that, how much it sounds like ammonia Yes. and stuff. But yeah, that makes sense. So they all uh, go together. And um, many of the, of the chemicals in our brain are in this class of monoamines. So they have one amine group. Usually that is more than just the amine group that's important. There's a benzene ring, which we've talked about before. It's a ring of carbons. And then there's a carbon chain. And at the end of the carbon chain, there's this amine group. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we mean by monoamine. And there can be slight alterations around either the benzene ring or on the carbon chain. But for the most part, you've got a benzene ring attached to a carbon chain and there's a nitrogen at the end. So you can kind of imagine a six membered carbon ring and then a bridge connecting it to an amine, kind of a bridge of carbon connecting it to this nitrogen atom at the end. Okay. So this is a class of molecules called monoamines. Uh, the big ones are dopamine, noradrenaline, and ephedrine. So yeah. you've probably heard of some of those. Yeah. Those molecules, among many other things that they do, they regulate our reward center and they send chemical signals when they bind to receptors in our brain. Okay. So people with ADHD don't have enough dopamine. Notice that's amine in yeah. it, dopamine. Another area where I didn't even think about the sound being similar. I think you're going to see that a lot today. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> so dopamine, there's not enough of it in the brain. Okay. And there's some. there was one paper I read that actually there may be other abnormalities in the brain of people with ADHD, but the biggest thing that we know now and that is treated right now is there's not enough dopamine in their brains. In my brain. There's not enough dopamine in my brain. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone else who has this. So when our brains need dopamine to be available to grab up, it's sometimes known as extracellular dopamine, like outside of the cells. Got it. There's not enough that can be grabbed up. So our brains cannot send the signals they need to send. So our brains literally cannot function properly. Mm, okay. 
So there's a lot of ways that impacts those of us without enough dopamine. And a lot of what I think the joke about ADHD is, is that you just get distracted, you know, or whatever. And that's part of it. But there's a lot more. So I'm going to read a quote from uh, one of the references that we cited in here. You can go find that paper. It's actually an open access journal. Executive control networks are affected in patients with ADHD. The executive control networks coordinate executive functioning, meaning planning, goal-directed behavior, inhibition, working memory, flexible adaptation to context. These networks are underactivated and they have lower functional connectivity in individuals with ADHD compared to individuals without the disorder. So planning, initiation of motor response, changing tasks, reaction to novelty, reward, uh, being able to behave in a way that's in line with your goals, having a good memory. Those are all things that can be impacted by not having enough dopamine in your brain. I'll talk about again at the end, some of how that plays out in my life. But I think we just have this idea that ADHD is you just get distracted easily like, oh, squirrel. Oh, I'm go- I'm right. I'm looking at this other thing now. But it's so much more than that. It's yeah, it really can impact literally your ability to behave in a way that's in line with your goals. Or sometimes my husband will be like, are you ready to go for a walk? And I say yes. And what that means to me is actually I'm ready to start switching my brain from one task to another, and he's literally ready to walk out the door. Right, right. (laughs) So it plays out in all these subtle ways because your dopamine is regulating so, so much of what's happening in your brain. Right, right. And like when people generalize to say like it's just being distracted or whatever, I think what's tough is that probably most of us would fit that bill. Right. So it's got to be more than just that because we're all, I mean today with the number of distractions we have in most of our lives. Right. Always easily distracted compared to maybe the average person, you know, 60 years ago or something like that. Right. So it's got to be more than just distractibility because that's more about external factors, not as much about, you know, internal. And so that makes total sense to me. It's got to be, there's more, more going on in the workings of your brain. Right. And then just like how easily someone could get your attention from one thing to another. Right. I, I totally agree. I think a lot of us are more distracted, even people who have uh, the perfect amount of dopamine in their brain because we are used to getting extra dopamine hits from looking at our phone. Right, right. But people who have ADHD have so much less dopamine that actually we are, our brains mm-hmm. subconsciously are constantly looking for dopamine hits. Ah, I see. So we will switch from one task to another because we're seeking out things that are going to give us more dopamine. Mm. So for me, that looks like picking up my phone over and over. Yeah. It also looks like eating sugar until I'm sick <laughs> because I know that's kind of funny, right? But yeah. I, I didn't know how other people could stop eating dessert after one or two Uh because literally people with ADHD crave dessert because it gives a dopamine hit that our brain is missing. Uh, I see. Not just the like sweet taste that everybody loves or whatever. Right. And we all probably get a little dopamine, but like you're craving it more. Yes. Got it. Got it. And I do think we can, we want those extra dopamine levels. Like dopamine makes us feel good. Right. So that's why we, that's part of why we love dessert is it tastes good. It gives us a dopamine hit. Yeah. But but it's so much harder for me to control that. Like there's a cake shop on the way home from work to my house. Uh-huh. And before I started my medicine, I would think as soon as I remembered that that cake shop would there, I would the whole way there think about it if I should stop and get cake or not and like have to talk myself out of it every single day Wow! because I wanted it so badly. And then after I started taking my medicine, I was like, oh, that was not normal. That right. was like my brain wanted candy so or dessert so badly yeah that it just like couldn't stop thinking about that yeah yeah interesting so that is how it plays out differently than normal normal quote-unquote normal i don't even know if there's like a normal person but people who have the right amount of dopamine yeah and then also just like the forgetfulness stuff like all that also plays out yeah so that's what ADHD is and what the symptoms are, is literally seeking dopamine hits constantly because you don't have enough. Okay. So that also means that it's hard for us to do the things we're supposed to do. So we procrastinate. 
we're forgetful. Like the whole function of doing what we should be doing. I really want an A in this class, but I cannot make myself do my homework Yeah, is because your executive function is literally not working. Mm. So that's what ADHD is. But I want to talk about the chemistry of ADHD, not just that the dopamine's not there, but what even the dopamine sort of does and how treatment helps. Okay. Okay. So in our brains, there's places where monoamines like dopamine are generated and stored. And then there's also a transport system that will take them over to somewhere else and that other place, this storage facility. So it's like generated and stored here, but then it gets transferred to more of like, I would say long-term storage, but also it's accessible to the brain when it's in this other storage center. That's whenever your neurons need it in this storage center, we'll send it out and you can collect it. Got it. So the way I thought about this actually is in terms of um, my husband's job. (laughs) So (laughs) this is my analogy. So my husband works as an engineer at a place where trucks are made. Okay. So, and his specific job is actually seats. Right, right. So seats are just one part of a truck. But if you don't have a seat, you cannot sell your truck. Right. If there's not a seat for the driver to sit in, the truck essentially is not functioning. Right. Okay. So in this analogy, the seats are the dopamine in your brain. Okay. And the truck being able to work is your brain. Okay. Okay. So there is a place where they outsource their seats from. So that would be like the initial synthesize and generate seats and short term stored there. Right. And then it gets transported to actually the factory where my husband works, where the trucks are made. Uh-huh. And they're also stored there, but when they need to be used, they can be used because they're stored in a way that's accessible there. They're readily available. Readily available. Put into a truck anytime they need to. Yes. Okay. So we've got the seat manufacturer place uh-huh. where the seats are made and and stored and then they get transported to the factory that the trucks are made in. Right. Okay. So there's also within this whole system say a department who's responsible for getting rid of any extra seats if you have an excess, like somebody who will take them and ship them off elsewhere. Got it. Got it. Those are the major players here. Okay. So the monoamines, specifically dopamine, this are the seats. The truck being finished is our brain being able to do executive function. And then there is an enzyme that breaks down extra dopamine in your brain. That's the person who's in charge of getting rid of extra seats. Okay. Um, the factory where the seats are made is called the cytosolic storage pool for anyone who cares. <laughs> and... <laughs> The uh, place where it's stored that the brain can more easily access it is the vesicular. So I think it's like vesicle storage pool. Okay. So again, this is simplified way down. I'm not really talking a lot about synapses or like how the brain gets it or the receptors or anything. I'm just talking about what the dopamine does. And then I'm going to talk about how the amphetamine gets in there and changes it. Okay. So those are the big players. The seat factory, the truck factory, and the uh, person who gets rid of the extra seats. Okay. So that's your, the seat factory is the place that makes the seats. That's the place that makes your dopamine. Okay. Then it gets transported over here to the the place where the truck factory can use it. Mm -hmm. And then the truck factory is your brain. Okay. Okay. Great. Now imagine... This is a reality, actually, (laughs) that there are a lot. There's just shortage right now. There's a ton of shortages right now in industry. Yeah. So the truck company cannot get the seats that it needs. The the people who are in charge of getting the seats out are, are going to try to pull the seats that they need to put in these trucks. And the seats just aren't there. Right. They don't have all the seats they need, so they can't make the trucks. In some way, there aren't enough seats at the truck factory readily available. Right. Okay, got it. And that's partially because the seat factory isn't making the seats it needs to make. Got it. It's either slow or something's gone wrong over there. Something's gone wrong. Yeah. So the truck company 
hires a consulting firm, right? Right. The consulting firm gets in there and shakes things up. Okay. So the consulting firm to solve this problem would do three things, not in real life. This is now I'm talking about what Adderall will do, Uh (laughs) but this is like, imagine if the consulting firm just went ham and they did uh, some crazy things. (laughs) One, they uh, make fake chairs (laughs) that they can plant at the chair factory. So the chair factory thinks it has enough chairs that it can send out the real ones. Okay. Interesting. So it kind of make, they make dummy chairs and they trick the chair factory into thinking there's enough chairs to be just sending chairs out. Got it. Got it. Or seats out. Seats. Right. So basically kind of tricking it into thinking like, Hey, we got to, we're pretty full. We got to start getting rid of some of these. Yes, exactly. So that's one thing the consulting firm does. The next thing the consulting firm does is retrofit the truck factory to start making its own seats. Mm. They're like, we know you have some in storage here, but this is honestly just not enough. So you need to actually start pumping some out as well. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice to cut out the middleman kind of thing Mm -hmm. and have your own seats right here that you could make? Right. And then they give the guy whose job it is to get rid of extra seats they give him other tasks so he's distracted. So he's not getting rid of seats. Right, right. Because he would be getting rid of seats that are needed. That are needed, especially maybe continuing to do his job, get mm-hmm. rid of seats while they're even maybe in short supply. In short supply, he would keep doing his job. So this breaks down the actual analogy a little bit because I don't know why someone would be getting rid of seats that are needed, but (laughs) that's literally what your brain does. So let's bring this analogy back to your brain. Okay. So there's an enzyme in your brain getting rid of dopamine that doesn't need to be got rid of. The, The dopamine factory and storage centers don't have enough dopamine. And so we've got to address all three of those things. Okay. So enter Adderall, the consulting firm. Adderall is a trademark name. It's also called, are you ready? Yeah. Amphetamine. Amine. <laughs> amine. Yes. So yeah. it's a specific type of amine. The uh, chemical official name is 1-phenylpropan-2-amine. The biological short common name is alpha-methylphenylphenylamine. They have mm-hmm. a weird extra ethyl in there that I... They're trying to indicate the length of the bridge between the the ring and the nitrogen. Uh-huh. So that's why it's called amphetamine. This is just shorting, shortening of that alpha methylphenolphenamine. Got it. Okay. 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 Cool. So Adderall or amphetamine is the consulting firm. Yes. So Adderall has, amphetamine has a very similar structure to all those other monoamines. It has those major features. It has the benzene ring with a bridge to an amine group. Mm -hmm. And so it will come and act as an imposter in the, that cytosolic storage system where the dopamine is generated and initially stored. And that makes that that storage system think, oh, we got to kick this out and we got to start transporting some out to where the brain can get it. Okay. But then at the same time, amphetamine actually kind of hops in that transport system. Mm -hmm. And so the receiving place, the vesicle storage thinks it's not getting enough dopamine. So it should probably start releasing more dopamine out. So instead of taking dopamine in, now it's releasing dopamine too. Mm. So now you have dopamine being transported to some place out to where it's freely available. And you have dopamine being released from the thing that normally takes it up and stores it for a while. And Adderall blocks the enzyme amphetamine. It's a similar enough structure that it can go in and block that enzyme. That's trying to break down extra dopamine. Got it. Interesting. So, Because it's so structurally similar, it can basically be an imposter in the part of the brain that's trying to release dopamine and tricks that part of the brain into releasing more. And it also (laughs) convinces by blocking the amount of dopamine that's actually being transferred, convinces another part of the brain to start releasing more dopamine instead of holding on tight to it. And... 
it blocks just slightly. There are other things that block it better, but it it also blocks this enzyme that breaks down dopamine that's quote unquote extra in your brain. Because my brain thinks, oh, you got extra dopamine. I'm going to break it down. But actually what it doesn't know is I'm short on dopamine. It's right. malfunctioning literally. Yeah. So yeah. it's that guy who's getting rid of seats, even though we're short on seats. Yeah. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? Yeah. Bring yeah. the seats back, bro. Yeah. So when I take Adderall, when I put amphetamine into my brain, it basically convinces my brain to release more dopamine. That's the simple version. The complicated version is it does all these three mechanisms, but it convinces my brain to release more dopamine so that when dopamine is needed, my brain can use it and I can focus, executive function can happen, we can make trucks. Right, right. And that's how... ADHD negatively impacts your brain and how ADHD medications, I use specifically amphetamine, other things will, anything that has a similar structure will do the same thing basically. Yeah. And that's how it corrects the chemical imbalance in your brain. Got it. Got it. Man, interesting. That is fascinating. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. I was so excited to learn about why my brain didn't work. Yeah. And I was also so excited to learn about how chemistry made it possible for my brain to work. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think my assumption before you had said anything would just be, I mean, this is what a total layperson would think anyway. So, you know, but would just think, okay, you don't have enough of something. The pill must just be that thing. That's what I thought too. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, this is just some dopamine and a pill. Yeah, that's and what then I it's thought. it's readily available. Maybe there's some really good reason why that wouldn't work couldn't work. It's yeah, I hard don't to, know why you can't just take dopamine pills. Yeah, but uh, who cares? I mean, if it if this works, great. Who you know? cares? But that's it's just cool how you could find ways to get the brain to just do it. Yeah. Instead of just introducing it yes. on its own. Instead of just here's dopamine. It's like, hey, brain, let's nudge you along. Help help you do it yourself. Sort right. Of, yeah. You know. And I don't know if this is true, but I feel like even when I haven't actively just taken some of my medicine, like if I, if I wake up this morning and I haven't taken it yet, my symptoms are still less, mm. even though I haven't taken it since yesterday. Like almost like my brain knows how to make more of its own dopamine or something now, or yeah. there's like still a little bit of extra dopamine. Like I hadn't had Adderall all day at a, and I was at a party and someone offered me candy and I was like, that actually doesn't sound good. And yeah. it was a candy that I like. Yeah. And I cannot ever remember a time in my life saying that doesn't sound good to me about candy. Wow. Yeah. And I hadn't even had Adderall that day. It was like, oh, my brain just knows that I don't really need that. So it's not like there's a crash. It's not like there's like a... Mm, I nope, haven't experienced that. Ran out of all of it and um, there's none left. And now I'm way back to... I'm back to how I felt before I even... Started. I think some people experience that. So I have someone very close to me. I think they'd be comfortable with me sharing, but just in case I want that has very severe ADHD mm -hmm. and they got diagnosed in college. And when they got diagnosed, uh, their, the doctor that diagnosed them said it was the worst case of untreated ADHD he's ever seen in an adult. Oh my gosh. And that person does not take medicine because I think their ADHD is so severe that when they take the medicine and then they come back off, they don't have the coping mechanisms. Mm. Like it, they describe it as it's like flexing a muscle and you flex that muscle all day, every day because you're used to getting your brain in check Yeah, and then you don't have to. And it's incredible because you can do anything you want. But when you come down off of that, then it's super hard, it's really, really hard. And I noticed that a little the few, first like two weeks or so. Mm hmm where it felt like when I wasn't on it, it was hard to not interrupt people. It was, I was more forgetful, you know, that kind of stuff. But the longer I've been on it, it actually kind of feels like the opposite is happening where it's a little bit easier now for me to not be on it. And it's like, my brain's like, Oh, we've done this. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. I don't know for sure. That's just kind of how it feels yeah. to me. And I'm sure that, yeah, you've already said this a little bit, but like, the experiences obviously can vary wildly, I'm sure. Right. Yes. Mileage varies a lot on this kind of thing. Anything with the brain, anything with personal experience, and because right. you layer on top of it, that that's something your brain has a hard time doing, making enough dopamine right. and having enough available. And you have the specific personality and 
right. lifestyle, yes. job, friendships, yeah. situation, environment that you have, which I'm sure makes it where it varies so much. But right. it is so interesting to hear yeah. details about one, how it works, but also how it's worked specifically for you and that it's that it's been such a good thing is awesome. Right. Well, and I think my case is relatively mild mm. and I think that person's case is very extreme. So Got I it. think it just kind of depends and every person has a choice, right? But once you know if there's something imbalanced in your brain, then you can make decisions to kind of address that. Yeah, informed decisions. You can either know I'm not crazy. It's actually, I mean, it's really there. Yeah. There's options for me, but sometimes I'm sure the people who just even hearing this is why you feel that way is because your brain's not doing this this the way it, it otherwise would. Yeah. That can even on its own be helpful info, I'm sure. Right. And Jim, you remember, especially right, probably right around when my mom started to get really sick, I yeah. got really forgetful. We would have to reschedule. I'd have to go back and get something I forgot. I was like constantly forgetting little things. Yeah. And I would get so mad at myself. Like, why can I not just remember this? Why can't I just get places on time? Like, I would be angry, like yeah. really discouraged, like feel like a failure. And it's actually not that I'm a failure. It's that my brain literally couldn't executively function. That's why yeah. it was so hard for me to do those things because I didn't have the chemicals that my brain needs to do those things well. Yeah. And when I, I was dealing with everything going on with my mom, I didn't have any space left in my brain to force it to function the way that I normally did. Right. Right. So I, I do think that's also part of it is that sometimes you can just use outside external coping mechanisms and sometimes those coping mechanisms fall short and you need chemicals in your brain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just something I've seen at myself. Yeah. Okay. So I already gave an analogy. Mm -hmm. Do you want to try to say it back to me? Come up with your own analogy. What are your thoughts? Why don't I, I think the analogy makes a lot of sense to me. And so okay. my brain gears weren't turning in a way that made me think sometimes the analogies come up so naturally for me because my brain's searching for a way to understand it. Right. But in this case, I didn't have to. And so yeah, I, I felt like that was the best way because it's like a storage spot one. It's like made and stored and moves over here and then also gets taken up. Yeah. You know, was, that's not that's hard to understand. But yeah. the supply chain in our brain relates very closely to the supply chain in real life. So that I thought that was the easiest way to yeah. kind of paint the picture. So maybe I'm going to just spit it back to you. Um and that will also give you a chance to point out anything I misunderstood or something like that. Yeah, perfect. In in pretty layperson terms. But basically, our brains, everyone's brain, needs mm -hmm. needs and is looking for dopamine on a very regular basis. Yes. Our brain makes dopamine. Right. And then certain other parts of our brain are looking for it mm -hmm. at certain times. Yes. For a bunch of reasons. It helps us. We feel good with dopamine, but also we just need it to... Have what do you call it? executive executive function executive function, and so lots of basic functions that mm -hmm. help us get through the day, help us work and live and be a human being. Right. Um. We need dopamine for that. Right. So there is the th sort of three main pieces of this is a place that makes dopamine and stores it there too. And then the place that takes dopamine and kind of puts it where it needs to go. Mm -hmm. And then the part of the brain that breaks down dopamine that it thinks is not needed. Right. So, and I forgot the names of those vesicular storage pool. And yeah. One's an enzyme, the one that breaks it down. Right. Enzyme. It's, I think it's actually called monoamine oxidase. Mm. So usually enzymes are named so nicely, like... This is the thing it breaks down, ACE. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's that's the one. The other one I think is called uh, where it's synthesized and short-term sort of stored is cytosol mm. storage. And then there's vesicle or vesicular. Vesicular, okay. And that's the one where it sort of puts it where it needs to go. Right. Um, so there's those three parts to this. And when there is not enough dopamine available or being made or being sent out they're all all their jobs get a little complicated and don't right. serve you as a human being very well right 
me specifically and everyone who has ADHD. <laughs> yeah. And so what Adderall amphetamine does mm-hmm. slash amphetamine does is basically something specific to each of those areas. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just kind of do something with one of them on the side of the dopamine production area or this or the seat factory specifically it fills in fake something fake dopamine fake dopamine amphetamine is literally fake dopamine oh okay okay amphetamine looks looks and acts has so much similar in function to dopamine that your brain thinks oh this is dopamine there's so much dopamine here got it so it is the fake seats itself, it which is that is seats. kind of where the consulting thing breaks down because the, yeah. con- the co- consulting people made the fake seats. Yeah. Amphetamine is fake. Right, right. Dopamine in a way. So on that side, it but it ends up causing that part of the brain mm-hmm. to send out real dopamine out into your brain yep. to be available, mm-hmm. which then allows the part of the brain that wants to take it and use it and put it into practice Mm -hmm. there's more available Mm -hmm. it also somehow helps that part of the brain to start making its own it doesn't quite make its own Mm. it reverses a pump is how you can think of it so normally it's like i did use the analogy making its own for the factory because that was easier um because it kind of breaks down right but yeah yeah what technically happens is dopamine is being pumped into there to kind of be stored. Yes. And when it's it feels it's not getting enough dopamine, it will reverse the pump and unstore things. Got it. So probably a better way to describe it is reverse the pump. Yeah. So I don't think it's actually synthesizing new dopamine. It's just taking old dopamine that was in there and saying, oh, we need to release this. We're not getting enough. Got it. This pump has... There's way less concentration out there than there is in here. I should send out some dopamine. Got it. Okay. So it kind of tricks it into reversing its function. So that's kind of where I was like, oh, we're going to change the function of the truck factory. Got it. And then because amphetamine is so similar, it's also able to trick the enzyme mm-hmm. and basically stop it from breaking down the real dopamine right. that's there available. So when you combine all those three things that amphetamine's doing, it helps there to be a much more abundant supply of dopamine yes. available yeah. to be used by your brain to help sort of fuel the executive function yes. of your brain day-to-day life. And did I miss anything important? Mo- it's, no, it was called mono- so. monoamine. Oxidase, yeah. Yeah, and then that's the enzyme, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And what else? Anything else? I think that's it. Nice. There was an episode of the American Chemical Society puts out these short YouTube videos called Reactions. Uh-huh. And they had about a two-minute video where they talked about this as well. And they described it as it'd be like at a middle school dance, your dopamine's on one side of the room and your receptors are on the other. And that amphetamine just comes in and pushes them out onto the dance floor, mm. pushes the dopamine towards its receptors and holds them there longer got it so that is a very simple version of what happens but we went into all the details of how it happens literally in the brain which yeah things it's doing as if it's a supply chain yeah yeah Yeah, so it pushes it does push it out onto the dance floor which is where your brain needs it to be able to grab it and it holds it there longer by not letting the pump take yeah it into long-term storage kind of yeah so that's another analogy if that's helpful to you Yes, that is helpful. That's helpful. I like the supply chain one too. That that I think my brain thinks that way. And I think, you know, middle school dances, none of us really want to go back to that no. time of our lives. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no. if you're like me, you'd rather think about trucks and seats chain. and supply chains <laughs> instead yeah. of the horror of, of what if someone forced you onto the dance floor? You yeah, know, that's exactly. not fun. No, it's not. Then that makes amphetamine the bad guy but actually amphetamine is the good guy yeah seriously <laughs> yeah yeah and i love the idea that it's a consulting firm yeah. like hey uh i don't actually my brain this is my brain hey uh i don't actually know how to work can you help me fix this dopamine problem i have <laughs> and the adderall says yeah actually i've got some ideas i'm gonna pretend to be dopamine and check your brain brain and make this other party brain mad that it's not getting enough because I'm tricking it too. And I'm also going to cut off this other guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, here's our three point attack plan. You yeah, know? Yeah. 
I like imagining them that way. So yeah. And the big thing is because the structure of amphetamine is so similar to the structure of dopamine, that's why it can do all that. Right, right. So I'm going to give you a few bonus things. And then I also want to talk about how this has impacted my life. Okay. You may have heard of methamphetamine. Uh, yes, I have. It's a drug. Yeah. And it's bad for you. And people love to ask me when I tell them that I'm an organic chemist, they say, can you make meth? And I say, yeah, I could. It's actually pretty easy. That's why people on the street can do it. Yeah. But I can also make life-saving medicine. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Methamphetamine is amphetamine with an extra methyl group. And we've talked about methyl groups before. That's just one carbon with three hydrogens around it. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's called methamphetamine. It's the same structure as amphetamine, but it has an extra carbon group. It's different enough that it can be too stimulating. Got it. Got it. Which is what people who are using it want. They want to be too stimulated. Yeah. I don't want to be too stimulated. I just want to be able to have enough dopamine. Yeah. It's enough for me just to be stimulated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Just like a normal amount. Yeah. So that's interesting, I think. Um, The other interesting thing is actually they used to have ADHD and ADD. Oh, yeah. They've actually changed that now, and there is all ADHD, uh-huh. but there's two types. There's an inattentive type or hi- hyperactive type. Okay. I think I presented more as an inattentive type. Mm-hmm. I got in trouble a lot for talking in school. Yeah. I didn't always want to run around and do things. Right. For some people, there's a physical element of needing. Needing. Yes. Yeah. To, to, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what you're saying, I think. So if you are someone who thinks, oh, I don't think I have ADHD because I don't want to like run around all the time. Well, neither do I. Yeah. I do fidget a lot. And that actually is part of that hyperactivity needing to, you know, <laughs> get out. So I like pop my toes constantly. My brother thinks it's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> so there's just like things like that that are ways that I'm sort of stimulating myself, but that people don't see as hyperactive necessarily. Mm. And, um, also there's a lot of interruptions that you, you can accidentally interrupt people. And sometimes I do that on this podcast. I have to work really hard not to interrupt when you're talking. Um, it's okay. I don't mind. So (laughs) I think that's some other ways that it plays out as an inattentive type that people often let go unnoticed. Right. Right. And often also it goes undiagnosed in women than men. Mm. So a good friend of mine, I'm actually going to shout her out because I think she would love for me to talk about this. Her name is Dr. Katie Hosbein. We've actually featured her quotes on the show before. Mm-hmm. Katie was the person who told me, one of the first people told me she thought it, I should get tested because she had gotten tested. And she told me actually initially she got tested and it came back negative. And then yeah. she got reevaluated by someone else. And they said, the reason it came back is you not having ADHD is because those tests are designed mostly for elementary school boys mm. who are very hyperactive and can't focus even when someone's paying attention to you. But if you're someone who's high functioning, who's an adult, and if someone's sitting there watching you work, you can take a whole test and you won't present as being ADHD because you have accountability or, you know, yeah. there's like a consequence. So I thought that was really, really interesting as well. And as the point of being an adult, you have, you have found some ways to cope. Right. That a child would not have yet. Yes. In a lot of ways. So it might be yes. super different, super different mm-hmm. way of having to, f- to find it and point it out. And that is something I want to talk about. I mentioned I have clearly pretty good coping mechanisms. I was developing them, I think, in high school and college. Mm-hmm. I did struggle, though. I joke about not being a good student in college, but actually I was a fine student. I just was untreated ADHD. Yeah. <laughs> so I learned a lot of coping mechanisms to where I could really get my work done in a pretty efficient way as an adult in grad school. Yeah. And so people are very surprised when I tell them that I have ADHD because I'm so high functioning. Right. But they don't know those little struggles that happen day to day. And I think I had very good coping mechanisms. I make lists. I have accountability. I can get myself dopamine by listening to podcasts at the same time as I'm doing other work. But when my mom died... COVID hit, I remember saying, it feels like my brain has changed and I can't make it work anymore. And I think what happened is that the coping mechanisms that I had developed had begun to fail because I was so overwhelmed. Mm. And I think that happens with some other people who make it into adulthood without getting diagnosed and then a major life event happens and they just start, start to really struggle. And I had 
enough interest in my work and enough accountability that I, I was doing fine, even with it feeling like it was really hard, I could still get enough done. Yeah. But you know, my dissertation was due and this past March, I, I started to really go into a dark place and I was so anxious all the time. I had like my stomach would burn. It's kind of like heartburn, but it's like actually in your stomach. It's called indigestion rather than it being in your esophagus. Yeah. So I had a ton of indigestion. I was so, so forgetful. One time my husband and I were trying to go visit his family and I had to go back upstairs to make sure I locked the door like four times Mm -hmm. in our apartment. Like things were getting really bad. And it got to the point where I was crying every day, multiple times a day because I didn't know how I could get all my work done. Yeah. And I don't think that came through very much on the podcast because I love this podcast. Yeah. And so I would be happy when I could see Jam and and we could talk, but I was really in a dark space. And part of it was I would have all this work and I would set aside time to do it and then I would sit down to do it and I just couldn't. Yeah. And I didn't know what was wrong with me and I felt like I was a failure. And really what it was is that I just didn't have the dopamine to make my brain do what it needed to do. Yeah. And I remember I got a piece of paper from my boss. I was like, here's here's the quantitative analysis plan that we have. And I remember thinking, like, I don't understand any of this and just yeah. crying because I didn't understand any of it. And that was the week I'd actually made an appointment to get tested and I got the medication. And I, the next time I sat down to work on that, not only did I understand it all, but I also was able to work through everything and do all the analyses that we discussed in like four hours. Nice. Nice. And so that's the difference, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, my stomach was almost immediately settled because so much of my stress and anxiety was from not being able to make my brain do what it needed to do. My forgetfulness has significantly decreased my ability to do administrative tasks. One time I left my driver's license renewal for eight months because it just seemed too hard Uh to do it. You know, like those things were just really, really hard for me. Yeah. And having this medication has not only helped me do my work, but so much also in my real life. Yeah. And I think that we don't talk about that in academia very much. We sort of pretend like academia happens in a vacuum. You're either good at it or you're not. You show up, you do your work, you get it all done, and then you're done in, you know, three to five years with a PhD. Yeah. But that just hasn't been my experience. And I guess I just wanted to take this opportunity to talk about how much mental health can affect you. Yeah. And Jam, you were around, you saw how dark of a place I was in. Yeah. And you talked about how different it seems now that I have, that I'm being treated for yeah, this. I really could tell like from the first time that you, I think there are a couple of times that we hung out after you'd been diagnosed, but you hadn't gotten in the groove of taking your medicine quite yet. Right. And then one time we hung out and you were like, yeah, I've been taking it consistently or whatever. And it just, I could just kind of tell yeah. a difference immediately. And it wasn't like, oh, she's smiling more or something like that, yeah. that basic. It was more about a uh, sort of deeper level function yeah. and seeming more settled Yes. The the sort of turmoil of the yeah. churning storm of an ocean in your brain seemed much more uh, at uh, calm. I don't know how, right. to, how to put that in a better way, but yeah. No, that's a, I felt empty and I, I constantly felt like I was at the end of my rope. People would be like, how are you doing? And I'd say, I feel like an empty shell of a human being. And they would laugh, <laughs> but I meant <laughs> that that was how I felt. Yeah. And I do think the frazzledness, the feeling like I'm never going to be able to get my work done. I'm such a failure. Like all of those things. I, at the same time I started taking anxiety medication, but that medication was supposed to take about four months or four weeks to kick in yeah. about a month. I immediately felt relief of anxiety. So much of my depression and anxiety symptoms actually were coming from my ADHD. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to, address this because I don't think it's talked about in academia. I think there's actually a stigma for being treated for things that with chemicals, like, Oh, if your brain can't make the chemicals and you have to go buy chemicals to help your brain work, that that's bad. But it's, I cannot communicate how much has changed my life. And I also think about if I'd had this for the seven years, I was in a high pressure environment where my brain needed to be optimally functioning and I didn't have it. Yeah. And if there had been less of a stigma or if we knew more about what those symptoms actually looked like other than the classic just getting distracted thing, yeah, yeah, I think it would have been really different. And I, I was telling my husband, it kind of feels like I looked back over the last seven years and realized I've been running a marathon and I've been holding a 10 pound weight that I didn't need to. Yeah. I've been carrying this thing that I, I could have set down and I just didn't know that I could. Yeah. And so 
I just really want to encourage to all of our listeners or anyone who maybe thinks that they've got something going on, whether it's ADHD, anxiety, depression, that you address that and don't put it off because I just can't think about how much less of a dark place I would have gone to if I'd gotten help sooner. Right. And I first thought I might have it. A lot of people started telling me for the first time in August and September, I have a coworker, Dr. Corrales, we've heard Mm -hmm. about them and just people would start to say things. And I think it's because a lot of my coping mechanisms had gone down. And that was the first time we were together after the pandemic. Right. That people started to see things and say, Oh, I think you might have this. I, I've been told it like six times Mm -hmm. (laughs) over the last semester from different people in serious conversations, not casual conversations. And I still put off going to the doctor until March because I, there's so much stigma. I didn't have the right health insurance, this, that, the other. And I just am so, I just think so much how much I could have not been in a dark place Yeah. if I had responded sooner. Totally. And it's so hard too, because I think what's, what's interesting is like, I was thinking while you were speaking about how I've known you for a long time mm-hmm. and the way you just described all that stuff about you and about how hard this season has been, the past seven years have been. Right. What's so tough is I think when we are, the people that are in your personal life who have been for a long time, I think start to just associate that with your personality, right? which they're, they're a little mixed. So it's hard to probably draw a straight line between them, but those things are things I think I often just thought, Oh, that's what Melissa's like. Right. Uh, she's not the best at remembering stuff. So I'm just not going to be that mad about it when she forgets something and maybe if I think of it, I'll remind her or something like right. that. Yes. You know, not not the worst thing. That's that's your true. dopamine helped my dopamine absence a lot. Yeah, and that <laughs> there are people like that. So it's not always like ADHD is the only right. option. But I think that's what's probably another hard element of it being diagnosed is a lot of people around you who love you, who've been your friends for a long time, probably last thing on their mind that something is not right. Right. In some ways. And they'd rather just think, no, no, this is how she is. Yes. I don't want to say or think even that something might be amiss uh, or not right. working correctly with my friend's uh, dopamine or whatever. Right. That's m- most of us that wouldn't even occur to us. Yeah. And with kids, maybe that's a different thing. That's why it gets diagnosed more easily. Yes. But adults, I think we, we, right. It just from my, you know, subjective experience, I just would not think to be like, trying to diagnose people with stuff. Yeah. Um, very often I would just think that's everybody's different. You know, that's, there's tons of variety there and it probably would have been, been helpful for some other people to have caught this and been able to direct you sooner instead of just assuming all of it was your personality. Yeah. So I, and I think that's probably part of it is after the pandemic, I started working with people that I hadn't worked with before. So yeah. my coworker, Dr. Corrales, they also have ADHD and they often said, your brain and mine work the same. I think you need to go get tested. Yeah, that's you know? helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And they didn't know me before and they knew the symptoms. So actually I know several of my friends who I think they have it and some of them I lived with. And so I would. Some of them I know have it that I lived with too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we kind of all thought it was normal. This is normal. Right, and right. then I moved in with my husband who definitely does not have ADHD. I mean, is <laughs> the opposite of all these things in me. He's got all the dopamine he could ever he need. Has, yeah. <laughs> he can just do one thing at a time. I, I, that's when I knew that, that something was different yeah. with my brain. That was part of it too, is living with someone who was so not ADHD that right. then I thought, I don't think it has to be as hard as it had been for me, mm-hmm. but I had, a, I have, I happen to have a lot of friends who also have ADHD. And so when I lived with those roommates, I didn't know, yeah. <laughs> I thought this is normal. Right. So I, I think that's part of it too, is being in different environments with people who are experiencing you differently and they have experienced being diagnosed or whatever. Yeah. I think that was big, a big thing, but also, I've lived with myself my whole life. So yeah. I know people who have ADHD that were much more severe cases, which is why I got caught yeah. so early on. Yeah. And that's, to me, I thought, I don't have that because I didn't get diagnosed. Like, I don't have the same symptoms they do. Yeah. And also women, oftentimes it gets, they have more of the inattentive type. So it just gets cut off as like, oh, they're absent-minded. Yeah. Oh, they're chatty. Mm-hmm. That's why they talk a lot in class because they just are social butterflies. Girls love to chat. And that's how it manifests a lot. Right. 
And so that gets written off. They still can do well in school because they're driven by the their interest or their fear of failure or whatever it is. So they mm-hmm. can still finish, but it's really hard. Like I could get good grades, but it was mm-hmm. always procrastination doing it at the last minute, rushing, rushing to get it done. And then I'm like, what, what if right. I had done it sooner? <laughs> you and, know? And it probably doesn't co- cause quite as much of a, depending on the age group, right. a problem for everybody else yeah. in some way. So if you got a kid who's literally running circles around the classroom, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, let's stop that for, so that all of us yes. can learn yeah. for a second. But just so-and-so talking mm-hmm. to their buddy next to them a little bit more, that doesn't seem like... Like a symptom. Right. It, but it, it, would, it is. Yeah, it seems like, of course they want to talk. You know, whatever. But yeah, that's it makes sense, even though it's unfortunate. Right. It makes sense that one type gets diagnosed and noticed way more right. often because it's it rears its head so much more strongly. Yeah. But that's really unfortunate. So yeah, I guess I just wanted to be vulnerable about that. I wanted to do some work to destigmatize that a little bit, you know, and I also really just wanted to share my experience. And again, I spend so much of my life talking about how chemistry can help us. And in this way, chemistry is literally making my brain work well. And scientists have literally figured out how to optimize chemicals to make the chemical fun- function of my brain better. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> it's just really, really incredible. And also I think there's just so many people in academia. Academia attracts people with ADHD, I think because it's a flexible schedule and your work is changing a lot and there's, there's accountability. You have grades, you have this, you have that to push you towards what you want to do. You're interested in the subject and that's really important for people who have ADHD. Yeah. So if you know, that's you. A lot of our listeners I know are in STEM fields or who love academia. Please, if you feel some of these things, consider getting tested because it it has really changed my life so significantly for the better. Not just because I can remember things, but because I feel like I can literally function. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I just, I really wanted to share about that, the chemistry of it. And then also I really want to use this platform to help improve people's lives and make them not scared of how chemistry can help them. So, and with your example too, it's, I think seems obvious that it's the risks are somewhat low of getting tested, Right. potential benefits pretty high. So maybe you don't have it. Maybe you just have what everyone has. If they're in academia, um, you, random listener out there where it's just hard and it's crazy and it's a yeah. tough time of your life, whatever. And it is too. <laughs> yeah. But if there's a chance that you are carrying a 10 pound weight on this marathon, it might be worth it for someone to check that out and tell you that. Cause that would be pretty nice. It'd be pretty, some pretty nice relief yeah. to have that removed. So that's what I think seems a, like a pretty obvious and very helpful thing about hearing your story. Right. For sure. Well, and my coworker, Dr. Krauss, also was in organic chemistry and I think got a master's in organic chemistry too. And we both said to each other, do you ever think about if we would still have stayed in the organic chemistry lab if we'd been treated back then? Mm. Like we wouldn't do anything different. We love our, our lives and our research, obviously, but but I wonder if we'd been treated if we would have stayed in that field. Right, right. And also, I saw a Reddit post where someone said, is there such a thing as a high functioning person with ADHD? <laughs> and I know so many people who were deep into their PhDs, finished their PhDs, or just months away from their dissertation being due. So many people. Now that it's happened to me, I can think of five people right now that have PhDs or were like right at the edge of their PhD when they got diagnosed. Actually, six, seven. So that's a lot, right? And so there you can be very high functioning and still benefit from this right totally. i i have a master's degree in organic chemistry that's hard yeah and i'm m- like minutes away from a doctoral degree when i, I was 2 months away when i got diagnosed yeah. so uh, you can be very high functioning and still benefit from intervention especially if external factors are going to make it more difficult for you to function optimally yeah Okay, I'll get off my soapbox now. I know this is a longer episode than normal, but I always try to use this platform to talk about issues in academia. And I definitely think that destigmatizing, getting help for mental health is really important. And I think there are a lot of people in our field who would benefit from hearing this. Yeah, 100%. That was really helpful to hear about and really important to, to share about for for the topic of this podcast, the type of audience. We know you guys, um, a lot of y'all benefit from hearing about stuff that's specific to academia, but some of you guys aren't in academia, but it could still benefit you too. Right, definitely. 
And so instead of just, instead of sharing a highlight from our weeks this week, we'll just have devoted this time that you guys have just listened to, uh, that Melissa got to share more about her ADHD diagnosis and story and stuff. We'll let that be our highlight of the week kind of stuff. It's a huge highlight. (laughs) Yeah, huge highlight. I'm not going to try to follow that. So (laughs) let's just leave it there and, and transition into wrapping up. And you guys will get to hear highlights of our week at the next episode. Definitely. Thank you so much, Jim, for letting me uh, take the time to talk about that and for learning about how amphetamine and ADHD work. And thank you so much to all of you listeners. I I know I talk a lot about how much it means to me, but truly in the depths of my despair, this podcast still brought me light. When I was struggling so deeply and felt like I was a shell of a person, I was still happy to come here and record with Jim and know that you guys were learning chemistry and having fun doing it. So Thank you guys so much for giving us the opportunity to have this platform. Thanks for teaching us. Thanks for one, suffering through when it was really hard and still (laughs) sharing with us and having episodes regularly. And we are all very glad that things are different now and that you've turned a corner and that you've gotten assistance and your brain has the help it needs. That's awesome. If you out there have questions or ideas about topics that could be chemistry related, a question in your daily life that you're like, huh, this might be chemistry please reach out to us on Gmail, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Chem for Your Life. That's Chem, F-O-R, Your Life, to share your thoughts and ideas. If you'd like to help us keep our show going and contribute to cover the cost of making it, go to ko-fi.com slash chemforyourlife or tap the link in our show notes to donate the cost of a cup of coffee. If you're not able to donate, you can still help us by subscribing on your favorite podcast app and rating and writing a review on Apple Podcasts. That also helps us to share chemistry with even more people. This episode of Chemistry for Your Life was created by Melissa Collini and Jam Robinson. References for this episode can be found in our show notes or on our website. Jam Robinson is our producer, and we'd like to give a special thanks to A. Collini, who reviewed this episode.